Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Policy Forum Pod is produced at policyforum.net, right here at the Crawford School of Public Policy which is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Don't forget to check out the range of degree programs and short courses that we have on offer here at Crawford, and you can find all of that information at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. We would love to have you come and study with us. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School, and I am delighted to be joined today for this conversation with Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be back again. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm I'm a cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at ANU. Great to be in the studio together. It is good to be here. This is the second in our series on work, and today we are very excited to be talking with a truly amazing thinker and activist. Last week, we began the series with James Hussman, and we discussed different understandings of work and different ideas about affluence based on James's research in Namibia and Botswana. And one of the issues that we explored with James was the quite problematic ways in which we value work and the way in which the gender division of labour changed when the Yuhuansi people, the people that James did his research with in the Kalahari region, the way that gender division of labour changed when people moved into urban centres and changed their traditional ways of thinking about work. This week, we're exploring how we measure and how we value the work that contributes to society, to human well-being and to the well-being of our planet, and the range of work that is not formally valued through national accounting systems and that is deeply disturbing. Many of the things that are essential to life are not counted, and much of the work, particularly care work, that societies depend on is disregarded. And of course, this continues conversations that we've had on the pod before about valuing care. And my and Anna Greta's favourite hashtag that we're adding to this series is hashtag value caring. Today, we will talk about care, but we'll also talk about more than care, about livelihoods, about well-being, about planetary survival. And of course, these issues are intertwined. In arguing that we must rethink what work we value and how we value it, 
and what other than work we must value. Today's guest has said, I do not want the most valuable things on earth, the things that I treasure, sitting in an accounting framework that thinks war is great for growth. Now, let me just encourage everyone to reflect on that and what that means, and to reflect too on the fact that what is not counted or valued in our national and global accounting systems is the work that is done to contribute to care, to connectedness, to environmental sustainability. This raises so many profound questions about what work is valued and how we think about work. And to help us talk through and to answer some of these questions today is the incredible Marilyn Waring. Anna Greta, would you like to introduce Marilyn? It's fantastic to have Marilyn with us today, and thank you so much for that introduction. Dame Marilyn Waring is a political economist and a public policy scholar and a pioneer of feminist economics. She's a professor of public policy at Auckland University of Technology. At 23, Marilyn became New Zealand's youngest member of parliament. She chaired the Public Expenditure Committee. Her first book, If Women Counted, published in 1988, is a groundbreaking critique of the systems of national accounts, which inspired a generation of scholars and activists. The following year, she was awarded her DPhil in political economy. Marilyn has advised a wide range of United Nations agencies and led the gender and governance team for the regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands. She's a leading figure in global human rights, gender equality, anti-nuclear and gay and lesbian rights movements. Her work as a human rights defender has been recognised by Amnesty International. In 1995, Tara Nash directed a film of of Marilyn's work entitled Who's Counting? Marilyn Waring on Sex, Lies and Global Economics. In 2013, the anthology Counting on Marilyn Waring celebrated her pioneering contributions to scholarship and policy. In addition to her long list of publications, Marilyn has an equally long list of international awards which recognise her vision and influence. And in 2020, she was appointed a Dame Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to women and economics. It's such a pleasure to have Marilyn with us today. Welcome, Marilyn. Marilyn, you've spoken about the links that connect stories you heard as a young parliamentarian. I think it was you were in your 20s when you were elected to New Zealand Parliament. Yes. Um, so you remember those stories and link them to the kinds of contributions to the well-being of our, econo- our communities, our ecosystems, our planet, as you've seen, that have no little or little or no value in our economic systems. And you said that that link uh, was the gross domestic product or GDP. Can you talk about what you found were the values that underpin GDP and why is that so problematic? Well, I think one of the important things to remember about GDP is that it's actually been with us only since 1953. I think a lot of people talk about it and treat it as if somehow or other we've had it there for centuries. Of course, the ideology that was uh, enabled GDP was there for centuries. So if you think about 1953, we're post the Second World War. We have uh, the Bretton Woods Agreements, the establishment of the IMF, of the World Bank, uh, rebuilding Europe, and then sets off 20 years of amazing decolonisation. if if I'm a colonizer and uh, I'm looking at countries where I have really significant private business interests, because this is what always followed colonization, 
then I'm interested to know if I should stay invested there. Uh, during the Second World War, uh, the GDP was used to try to demonstrate that um, you could continue to invest in munitions uh, and that it would be good for the economy. So it all gets formalised in 1953. And when people say we need a paradigm shift from GDP, I think going to the source in 1953 is very, very important because that's where the paradigm gets established. And the paradigm says, okay, the ecosystem is of no value at all unless we are extracting or depleting or, or exploiting it. When it enters the market, then it has a value. Um, to give its life-sustaining services is of no value to an economy at all, says the paradigm. So the paradigm also says that households cannot produce uh, services and they <laughs> reproduction, so being pregnant, uh, having a child, lactating, uh, bringing up the child is completely left out. There's no reference to it at all. Uh, and then we're told that the work that women do in households as what they call non-primary producers is, quote, of little or no value. So that establishes our paradigm right at the beginning. What's left out? the whole of the ecosystem, what's left out, all unpaid work. And sometimes that's done by boys and girls and women and men. So we establish that paradigm and that paradigm sets up particular values. Uh, and all these years later, um, nearly 60 years later, those values are still there. So the illegal trafficking of people, of armaments, of drugs, is very, very good for growth. Uh, the production of munitions and getting ready for war and having wars is very good for growth. The extraordinary um, climate change crisis that we find ourselves in a lot of the reason for that can be levelled at what the GDP encouraged, um, which was this market exploitation. So that's a kind of a big picture. It's very, very difficult if one of the central figures you use for making public policy leaves out the ecosystem and the planet and leaves out the most work that is done by the most people on the planet every day. Marilyn, I think that that I, or that point that you make about going back to 1953 and thinking about the origins of GDP is so useful when we think about this. And I wanted to to tease out a little bit your thinking on what all of this has meant for women in particular and for women's place within society and for gender relations. But of course, if we think about 1953, 
and the gender relationships in the United States and Western Europe, where these ideas were coming from, we know that women were highly domesticated. Their role was seen as only in the home. So that starts to give us a clue as to where that problem lies. But can I just ask you to reflect a, a bit more on what the the lack of value placed on so much of the work that women in particular do has meant for the structure of our societies and women's place within it? Okay, so there's a very simple dynamic that operates uh, for any government when it's doing its annual budget. If you're invisible as a producer in a nation's economy, you're invisible in the distribution of resources, the redistribution of resources. Um, And so if you are treated only as a unit of consumption, which is what uh, economics says, goes on, um, then if you continue to be invisible for policy planners, we know how this plays out. Um, So we know that GDP doesn't give us levels of poverty. uh, It doesn't give us the distribution of poverty. Um, We know that uh, over this whole 60-year period, Australia and New Zealand in particular, have gone through their neoliberal phrases where you just discharge (laughs) um, household managers from hospital because you need to turn the beds over and they go home with the family expecting them just to resume services, of course. Uh, It's extremely difficult to argue for um, highly subsidised, safe childcare centres for people who appear not to be doing anything at all. Uh, And it, it's the, that, that redistribution is magnified depending on which countries you're in. When I was an MP, for example, per capita production from a farm only counted the usually male farmer, whereas you knew that, that the production from the farm was the result of all adults and all children on that farm. So your investment decisions on per capita production were always wrong. Um, when you get to the so-called developing world, what happens is that there's such a um, a relationship between the, the household and all the subsistence work that a woman does, which is supposed to be counted, that in fact there, there's a, a demarcation there which is a nonsense. If I have to walk for an hour to carry water, I'm going to reuse every drop of that water as frequently as I can each day, and I'm going to juggle that between so-called productive and so-called unproductive activities, right? So um, I'll be washing the child, washing the dishes, etc. but I'm also uh, cleaning uh, the animal um, areas, I'm watering my plants, etc. So the majority of women's lives on the planet just don't demarcate nicely for GDP. And one of the things we can really say in uh, 
2021 is whenever the rules about what is to be measured have shifted on on the GDP. So there's something called a boundary of production and it shifts. So by 1993, it had shifted to such an extent we were supposed to count all subsistence agriculture. Well, we don't. The world doesn't. Even when it collects the data, there's been some great work done in India describing how even when the data is collected in the census and even simultaneity of work, doing more than one thing at once, is collected, the data is never interrogated in that way. So coming through the COVID period, for example, each time I read descriptions about, um, you know, the the uh, various assistance that there is for people who have been in full-time paid work uh, in our Australia and New Zealand, for example, I'm thinking to myself, okay, the pictures I've seen, the informal workers walking home in India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, male and female informal workers are not counted. Subsistence workers are not counted. Voluntary and community work, all those people in food banks trying to get households through, that doesn't count. And the unpaid work in the household has multiplied phenomenally with children at home, with everybody to care for every hour of the day instead of mornings and afternoons, um, and with that simultaneity of activity going on the whole time as well. So let's just think about the quantitation of this. Um, you mentioned earlier, and you've just described superbly, just the, the huge volume of work that's done on a global scale and locally and regionally in Australia and New Zealand. What does our time use data tell us about unpaid work? How much of the work, what proportion are we leaving out of our calculation? Okay, so the there are several ways to measure unpaid work, and give it a market value. It's very problematic, but I'll run through those very quickly. <laughs> so you can have a kind of specialist replacement value. So we can break down all the chores into their specialist effects. So, for example, you'll have a chef, a nutritionist, a kitchen hand, as opposed to a cook in the kitchen. Um, you can do that. You can do just a straight replacement method, which is generally what would you pay one person for 40 hours a week to do this kind of work? Um, and then there's the opportunity cost uh, approach, which is if this person wasn't full-time involved in unpaid household and other activities, what might they be able to earn in the market? So. We get those out of the way into one side. They're all problematic. They're all problematic because um, generally the rates of pay for those particular work activities are also gendered. So we have that issue, right? We think about our teachers, our childcare, 
uh, experts, our cleaners, etc. Um, all, all the uh, categories of work that should be the subject of pay equity tend to be what this gets valued as. Now, when Duncan Ironmonger, who I think is an emeritus professor now at the University of Melbourne, was developing his input-output studies for the household in Australia, I challenged him on this. And I challenged him because I said, not only uh, do we have inequitable pay in these areas, but you are not factoring in double time, triple time, um, you're not trouble, uh, putting in sick pay, you're not giving holiday pay allowances as superannuation contributions. And until you do that, you're not actually making any sense of the figure you're producing. So Duncan just shifted <laughs> um, his figure to the average annual salary for all Australians. And that immediately changed the proportion of GDP produced in this invisible sector. I think in his uh, calculations, um, all of that work was worth 48% of Australia's GDP. So when I say to people, look, I'm talking about the single largest sector of any nation's economy, it doesn't really matter whether it's Vanuatu or Australia, or Papua New Guinea, or Indonesia, however we measure, we find that sector is the largest. But, and but, <laughs> one of our issues is that a lot of the um, census instruments or research instruments that go to look at unpaid work only ask for the primary occupation or the primary activity. This is based on the old original household census questions. What's your primary activity? Well, women with children who aren't at school are always engaged in that activity, <laughs> whatever else is happening, and then they do everything else around it. Right. And the best time use data series show we're looking uh, for women in particular at uh, simultaneous activities for 30 to 40% of the time. So if you're an economist, what you understand about this is that simultaneity increases the value of production. Then there's another issue. And I remember when we made the Canadian documentary, Who's Counting, I used the term logistics analyst um, for this vast amount of never-ending work that goes on for a woman. In the Public Service Association module I've just written, we've got 12,000 replies. We haven't analysed the data yet. I used the term worry work. How often are you involved in worry work? And this is a kind of a constant. And I've now found that a young sociologist at Harvard is calling it cognitive work. And she did uh, some research with couples who, yes, were all college uh, educated. Um, but what that established was that the men just 
turned over the worry work. Every week they were conscious they didn't have to worry about that. So it's very interesting that if we use the kind of corporate approach to what is this job worth, then it's worth far more even than Duncan uh, Ironmonger determined it was worth. Stop right there. We only talk about what it's worth to get uh, focused attention to the sector because we do not want to abstract all of that work to monetary value to make public policy decisions about it. It's like trying to abstract the value of water. How on earth do you do that? It's crazy. It's a free gift of nature until humans interfere. So time, time use, how people use their time, I think is the indicator that becomes the baseline for the new paradigm. Marilyn, I I think that idea of worry work is such a fundamentally important one. And I think in the context of COVID, we're probably seeing that worry work for women particularly multiplying in ways we couldn't have imagined two years ago. There's, There's a lot more for us to tease out here, but I think this is the perfect time for a break. Listeners, don't go away. We will be back in just a moment to continue this conversation with Marilyn Waring. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. Anna Greta and I are here with Marilyn Waring, and we're talking about the kinds of work that are valued and counted, um, and the kinds of things that we don't count. Marilyn, in 2008, as the world struggled with the global financial crisis, President Sarkozy of France convened um, a group of eminent economists, Joseph Stiglitz, Amartya Sen, Jean-Paul Fitozzi, um, and, and, and put together the Commission on the Measurement of Economic Performance and Social Progress. They found what you had been arguing 30 years earlier, and that is that GDP, as it was compiled, has its weaknesses and does not measure the essential components of well-being. Um, and I think the conversation we've just had has convinced everyone of that. 
I do think that that example of the the commission, perhaps not including you, is an example of the way in which women's contributions and feminist contributions can be made invisible. But that issue aside, has that work by the commission shifted the kinds of work and contribution that are formally valued and included in national accounts? You know, you talked about the example of Duncan Imunger's work, but have we seen that happening globally as a result of that commission? Well, there's been uh, some ongoing time use theories in OECD countries since uh, the 1970s. So that's that's an extended period of time um, to build up that time use series. I'm still not sure that uh, bureaucrats and politicians know how to use that series properly. Um, there, there has also been quite a bit of uh, research um, with different foci, really. So Mexico, for example, was very focused on measuring informal work uh, for a long time, did a great deal of work there. Uh, the UK census always gathers unpaid work, and that's been particularly important to target children who are in charge of somebody who's very dependent on them for their health and well-being inside uh, a household. There has been, prior to 2008, to that report and since, a whole lot of worrying around the edges of GDP. All right. So a lot of either the statisticians or the national income economists um, have, yeah, been worrying around the outside. So there are some things that we can see really clearly. Number one, it can't keep up with measuring what's called financial intermediation services. And that's a huge industry in terms of the movement of goods and money, for example. Um, It it really struggles to measure what I call the underground economy. Australia has an annual entry for this, uh, and it's what we would call cash jobs. So, you know, the plumber or somebody comes and gives you a hand and it's a payment under the table. But uh, Australia, for example, doesn't count its criminal activities in that underground economy issue. I think everybody understands that climate change is the pathology that is a direct result of GDP and GDP measurement, and you have to remember all the time, I think about this a lot when I think about the need for a paradigm shift, about how the boys made GDP growth competitive. Mine is bigger than yours. On and on. This does not serve independent countries with really distinct other considerations. In New Zealand, the um, indigenous Māori people, for example, have a very different approach to well-being 
And in some cases, that is very mirrored with the Indigenous populations of Australia. I'll give you a really little example that I try to use when I have PhD students who have been completely tra uh, trained to think that, you know, you can be clinically, clinically objective, but you try and move them away from. But people, Māori people say that one of their most important treasures, right, tōnga, which really doesn't translate well, but we could call it a value, is te reo Māori, the Māori language. And in the well-being discussions that I've read in Australia, language is so important. The GDP couldn't give a damn about language, right? Doesn't even think it's valuable. And at the same time, The Guardian is running stories saying, as we lose our indigenous languages, we lose the meaning and knowledge that these words had with relationship, and I think this is very important, towards plants and herbs and bark and roots that were used as medicinal remedies. So to me, that's a value chain. The whole of that is a value chain. And the market isn't interested in it at all. And GDP just couldn't care about values that lie outside the market paradigm. Marilyn, that's an extraordinary framework. That line that climate change is the pathology that's a direct result of GDP is going to circulate in my brain for months ahead. Um, and it has me back to the wellbeing economics series that Sharon and I uh, ran last year where we spoke to a variety of thinkers around the, the use of GDP and why it's so problematic. How can we start to think differently about the the role of unpaid work and the value of these of these extraordinary elements of life which are not valued in consumptogenic or extractive models of GDP? What what are, what are some of your favourite models that are emerging in this conversation? Uh, I really like indigenous models because they demonstrate you know a, an awful lot of economists have become PhDs. Um, without understanding at all that economics is a social science and it is subject to axiologies and epistemologies and methodologies, just like any other social science. Nothing about it is objective. Nothing about it is uh, clinically detached. Nothing about it is value-free. Okay. And that's kind of like the main message you have to get down to economists who mostly run off to business schools because they don't want to deal with the fact that they're completely ideologically written. And as I've said to you, so 1953, and GDP, especially for people who do not understand GDP, and that goes for a lot of politicians, becomes just this excuse not to have to make trade-off decisions across a range of other variables. So they just keep their eye on the prize. Is GDP up or down? GDP needs to keep going up because GDP keeping going up is what attracts investment. And so, you know, it's a never 
uh, an ever-diminishing cycle of fewer and fewer returns, really. Uh, and I do think that right now people are so habituated to GDP, it might be difficult to shut them. Um, but look, we were all addicted to plastic bags two years ago too. You know, um, the GDP is an idea. Okay, so do we have things to put in its place? We most certainly do. First of all, we have ever more increasing measurements of our ecosystem in terms of their own characteristics. So not sitting there saying, oh, goodness me, look at this beautiful forest in Tasmania, and it can be, if we, if we milled it tomorrow, this is what it would be worth. So, dear Tarkeen Forest, this must be what you're worth, the value of all of the logs sold tomorrow. Well, this is reprehensibly stupid. I think we all know this now because the Tarkeen Forest is better for everyone who lives in Tasmania as well as on the planet, if it stays exactly as it is, being a carbon sink, assisting with uh, the reproduction of all the species that live there. And so let's just measure our environment in terms of our either protection of, for example, those forests measured by hectares, etc., and re-establishment, new plantings, etc. That's what we want to know about. We don't want to know about what might these logs be worth on the market if we, you know, took the whole forest. And I think people around the planet are more and more in tune with environmental characteristics. And when you don't abstract them, everybody can remain part of the argument. Economists love giving abstracted values to various things because it then leaves people out of the argument and you can't participate unless you're an economist who believes in the abstractions. So we have to have our physical characteristics. We have to have time use. Now, why don't we have time use internationally all over the place? Because I don't think the guys are stupid. <laughs> because when you have time use data series, you have to reallocate resources. And it would be really shocking, I think, the guys think, if they had to reallocate resources to the single largest part, single largest sector of economic activity. And then people say to me, well, and what would that mean? And I would say, okay, so what it would mean is that the moment a woman is pregnant, her food, water, shelter, is the most primary investment that we can make. And what's more, once she's delivered a child, then she's on super. And we, the state pays, makes those kinds of payments for this work. As Julie Smith, who's a fabulous Australian researcher in Canberra, will tell you, there is no more healthy food on the planet than mother's breast milk. So lactation and the available the possibility that women can lactate with, with enough nutrition of their own is kind of basic to me as well. 
I love to include Indigenous wellbeing characteristics. In the PSA unpaid work module I just wrote, I actually took a number of questions from Te Kupinga, which is the Māori Wellbeing Survey in New Zealand, because I thought, look, most New Zealanders want to answer these questions <laughs> about whether we care for our environment, you know, about whether we're active in our communities, about whether or not we're planting, about whether or not we're sharing crop production, uh, not just Māori people. So let's see what kind of response I can get from Pākehā and other new migrant groups in the public service with respect to these questions. And and they're very, you know, the other reason why I love these Indigenous methodologies is because they're communal. So in in your country and mine, it's more productive for every one of us to have a car, when even when we know that that's a nightmare for the planet. If you look at the well-being work Mark and Nielsky did with the Nunavut people in Canada, it's how many of us share a dog sled that demonstrates the community well-being, not how many of us have one. When you look at the work with Cree people, with Aboriginal people, with Māori people, it's about communal well-being. It's not individual competitive approaches. And even the OECD approach still makes it individual and competitive. And then I just invite everybody to exercise judgment across a range of variables. In Alberta, Mark Nielski made a beautiful well-being circle. And in the finish, he had 53, I think, characteristics on the radar diagram. Uh, I think we're all getting used to the radar diagrams now, used in a well-being context, where the line will hit the outside of the circle in your very best year and then will retreat to the centre afterwards. That is hugely a hugely accessible presentation of well-being. I've stood in halls in Alberta and watched people debate the nature of the trade-offs being made that you can see so clearly in this representation, and nobody has to be an economist to take part. So for me, it is being very, very honest about what GDP isn't delivering. Look, honestly, apart from OECD countries, I don't trust one single GDP figure I ever read. And even then, I have to laugh about it because, you know, for example, if you have had for many years in the Netherlands um, both sex work and uh, um, some narcotic substances available in the free market, right, so all measured, and in other countries you don't, or you know you have 
uh, an institution like the mafia um, in the country, that their their figures are sort of vaguely comparable. But truly, do I believe the entries that the, the Russians and the Chinese write down for military expenditure? No. <laughs> no. So, so I don't actually know what people think they're looking at when they look at GDP figures anymore. I really don't know what they think they're looking at. Marilyn, I, I think that conversation is adding complexity and confusion in the most positive way. And I know Anna Greta and I are going to keep talking about some of these issues for, for weeks, probably months to come. But I, I wanted to ask you, last year, as the coronavirus pandemic swept across the world with all its horrors, I, I and, and I think many others were rather hopeful that it might signal a disruption to the dominantly neoliberal paradigm and to the financial of care, the financialization of the environment that you've talked about. I must say I'm beginning to lose my optimism. Um, but do you think this moment in time could be used to catalyse the kind of change that we need and how might we be able to make that happen? Well, the answer to is yes, it could be used, the time could be used to make change. Uh, am I hopeful about that? Well, not especially. Um, but I... I, one of the things I notice is that loads of people get to the, uh, you know, the edge of the cliff, uh, which is to say our GDP isn't working, but then have no idea how to progress on from there. And I think because it's been such a dominant ideology for so long, there's kind of a lot of lazy thinking going on. If you do sit around the cabinet table in New Zealand, for example, or Australia, but definitely in New Zealand, coming into the pandemic, the evidence that was called for was health evidence, not economic evidence. So that tells you straight away when you look at something like the UK that the evidence that was called for is how do we keep the economy turning over, and it doesn't matter about the 100,000 people who will lose. So we already have different value dimensions in play um, that are going to be written about for years. In front of those cabinet meetings was a huge diversity of data, right? It was not just, oh, here's the GDP. It's a very good illustration, even if they made the wrong decisions. It's a very good illustration of what re the real world is about. When you sit in cabinet to make policy decisions, you make those decisions across a range of variables. Cabinets are used to this. They may not be good at it, but this is already what they are invited to do. So challenging them by saying, okay, now put time use on your table. They're pretty, they're pretty good now at getting the natural characteristics of the environment on their table. In New Zealand they are anyway. Um, and what uh, indigenous 
collective well-being values are an integral part of making decisions in our nation. And yes, there in that corner is the GDP, um, with, understood now with all its flaws, but certainly no longer central to the decision making. So that's the kind of space I would like to go through. But listen, we have this, this is years from solution. People talk about the COVAX facility and getting the jabs into countries. Then you go, oh, yeah. And 70% of the health workers there are women, and 50% of them haven't been paid for months and months and months, and they're powerless anyway. I have got no idea how the world thinks it's going to roll out to the most vulnerable. And they're definitely going to need to think about value in a very different way. Marilyn, I think we could talk to you for hours, but we are going to need to round, run, wind this up and draw this conversation to a close, one I hope which will be of, of several And at the end of the conversation, we would like you to give us your favourite piece of advice. If you're speaking to power, if you're giving advice to nations around the world, to communities around the world on on how we can address some of the problems that we've been talking about today, uh, and particularly, I guess, around economic frameworks and the notion of work, what's your favourite suggestion? I think the most important thing in speaking truth to power is never to be intimidated and never to feel that we can't make a difference. I think that there are many people in power who would like us to think that we can't make a difference, and it's all too big, and it's all too difficult. And that just makes us very passive communities. So it's not too big, and it's our right as much as it is anybody else's right. And just keep just keep the battle going, really. I I really don't like to use <laughs> um, kind of fighting analogies, uh, but don't be silent. Don't stop. Just keep going. Marilyn, it has been an extraordinary pleasure to talk to you today. I think that piece of advice is something that we should all take with us. Uh, thank you for joining us today and thank you for your contribution. I, I must tell you that I read your book, um, if, if Women Counted, Counting for Nothing, as it was republished when I started my undergraduate degree. And it changed the way I thought about the world for the rest of my career. So thank you for joining us today. And thank you so much for all of your work. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, Anna Greta, <laughs> that was a phenomenal conversation. I think Marilyn is just one of those thinkers that changes the way you view the world. And I'm, I'm kind of processing what I take away from that. But I think there, there are so many things to, to take away from it. I was really struck, I guess, the, the reference she made to the Tarkine. And of course, as a Tasmanian, this is something close to my heart. But, you know, when she started talking about the way we think about only extractive value, you know, the, the value that we can extract from logging a genuinely unique part of the world that we should treasure for itself. And that same idea of extracting labour, and that's what we value, rather than valuing care and support. And Marilyn has talked elsewhere about the the work we do to support and save one another Mm. as being what is fundamentally valuable. 
I think when we when we kind of listen to the way she thinks about the world and the way she challenges that dominant paradigm, as she called it, it really does give us a framework to move forward. It gives us a way of making sense of some of these really complex issues and saying, what are the values that we need to hold at the heart of the decisions that we make? And those values, I think, are so different from the ones that drive our societies today. Or that we measure through GDP. And I thought that that historical context of GDP, I will go back to many, many times in the future. I found myself working through, again, the the conversations we had around wellbeing economics um, and the challenges that come up on this podcast regularly around climate change, around gender and disadvantage issues of social justice and equity, that we can't actually contend with that until we deal with an economic system that drives it, that we economic system that is around consumption and extraction, and that really doesn't reflect the richness of our human lives. Um, and that that number, which seems like a fair estimate, doesn't it, that 50% of the work that we're doing really is not reflected in the policy decisions that we make that are framed around GDP. And so that extraordinary relationship between our economic system as it stands right now and the way in which we value work and therefore the way in which we value caring and the way in which we value caring for ourselves, for our, our communities, for our family, for our friends, for our children and for the natural environment around us. And, and you know, I, I don't know what it takes to make the change, but I think the change needs to come. Yeah, I think one of the, the points that, that Marilyn makes and, and that you asked her about at the very beginning, Anna Greta, is you know, when she had kind of looked at all of these problems and issues that her constituents had faced when she was, was a young MP, but mm. you know, all of the challenges that we face globally since then, you know, when she looked for the common link, um, the common problem, it was GDP. It was the way we measure. So I think that's just such a, a powerful message that she has. And I, like you, I keep thinking how closely these conversations link to our Wellbeing Economy series. And, you know, folks, if you haven't listened to that series, it was late last year, go back and have a listen. These conversations link together so powerfully. We'll be talking more about work over the next couple of weeks, but I think we'll keep coming back to work and wellbeing and the way in which the way we think about work, the kinds of work we value, is so often undermining our wellbeing, you know, collectively and individually. Yep. It's a very important conversation and I, I'm certainly really enjoying the conversations we've had so far and the next few weeks ahead uh, should be a continuing uh, stream of brain-changing conversations. So thank you, listeners, for joining us. We're very much looking forward to the rest of this work series, which will go for another few weeks. We love feedback and uh, please reach out to us on whichever social media platform you like. Uh, we are on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. We're on Facebook and you can type the Policy Forum pod into the search bar on Facebook and join into our group. We'd love you to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you're using. We really do value the feedback and obviously by subscribing and by giving us a, a, a review, uh, that promotes the, the conversations that we're having, uh, which we hope are, are changing the discussion. We will be back next week with another conversation around work. Sharon, I'm looking forward to it. We will be back next week and, and the week after. And the and, week after. <laughs> and I hope our listeners are enjoying these conversations as yeah. much as I am. Um, I, I think as much as we are. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye until next week. And bye-bye from Anna Hunter too. See you next week.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.